Welcome to More to Come, PW Comic World's weekly podcast on graphic novel and comics publishing. Recorded, you know, around the way in New York City. Uh, um, uh, I'm Calvin Reed, Senior News Editor of Publishers Weekly, Editor of PW Comics World, and Editor of The Fanatic, PW's twice-a-month comics and pop culture newsletter. Check us out online at publishersweekly.com slash comics. And I'm Heidi McDonald. I'm the editor-in-chief of The Beat at comicsbeat.com. And you can find us on Twitter at, at PW Comics World. And I'm Kate Fitzsimmons. I'm the podcast producer. And you can find us online on Tumblr at pwcomicsworld.tumblr.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to More to Come on iTunes. And we're on social media. Social media. We're at facebook.com slash pwcomicsworld. And don't forget, you can let us know how we're doing by rating us on iTunes or other podcast platforms or even leaving us a comment, which we'd love to get, you know, uh, brickbats or plaudits. Uh, we just love to know what you think of what we're doing. So uh, give us some feedback. Hey, yeah. Valentine's Day is around the corner. Could we be your Valentine? <laughs> <laughs> well, I will let you know, listeners, that for all we had some technical difficulties, none of us are a cat. Ah, no. All right, everybody. Check your filters. I've got a couple of co-hosts that wish they were cats. Yes. Anyway. Yes. All right. My cat, not one on the street. (laughs) All right. This week on More to Come, Josh Whedon allegations. Uh, Disney shuts down Blue Sky. Image ends returnability. Convention update. Pants or no pants? And Stanley and King. Kirby. All right. What the heck's going on with Joss Whedon? Well, it was another week of um, some, uh, you know, allegations long buried uh, in plain sight coming out uh, with Joss Whedon. And, you know, Joss Whedon has, of course, written some comics. He wrote Astonishing X-Men, made some uh, great contributions to the X-Men mythos. But uh, he's best known as the director of yeah. uh, the two Avenger films and, of course, the cr- creator of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which is a nerd classic, a 90s, you know, masterpiece classic. And, and not to mention Firefly. And Firefly, right? And he's been known as the feminist um, showrunner. For, because for yeah. time. For a long time, you know, Buffy was absolutely something that brought a mm-hmm. lot of nerd girls together. Uh, had a lot of female cast members, uh, Sarah Michelle Gellar, uh, Charisma Carpenter, um, Felicia Day, Amber Benson. So many great nerd, uh, ladies got their start on Buffy. And so, um, and we you know, say it was a good show, even while saying it's been increasingly clear over the last few years that Joss Whedon has some issues as a human being. Yes, and, you know, I think um, a lot of the things got a pass uh, without social media, but now with social media, nothing gets a pass. Nobody gets a pass. But this story is a little more complicated. You know, basically, Charisma Carpenter, um, who, you know, now I've never watched Buffy, so uh, she played, who did she play, Kate? Are you a Buffy played? Yes, I can tell you. So Charisma Carpenter played Cordelia, a character who was originally cast as, like, the human bad guy as like the mean girl. But over the course of the show, through the evolution in the writing, she actually became a major character and a good person. Um, and the, the thing is, apparently, the creator of the show 
never liked her and treated her badly as a result. So we almost wonder if maybe he wouldn't have cast her if he knew that she was going to be a major character. So I think if uh, you're saying he didn't like her, I don't think that's entirely accurate um, because uh, there's quite a few rumors. So there's a lot of layers of this onion, but uh, a few years back, uh, Whedon's wife came out and um, and revealed that he'd had multiple affairs uh, with women on the shows he worked on uh, while they were married and that he had gaslit her and was really just, you know, I know one can't say four-letter words. He was a really crappy husband. So, um, you know, there is a lot of speculation. Uh, anyway, I'm not even going to go there. But um, Right, but the yeah. thing is that the allegations coming out now are not in a, of a sexual nature. They are of a verbally and emotionally abusive nature, which are completely in line with certain other allegations that brought this old stuff out. Well, yes. Now, why did this, you know, one of her, one of her complaints is that she became pregnant while she was a cast member of Buffy. And, uh, actually she was on, uh, Angel at that point. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there was a, like, according to what she said, he, you know, we said, are you going to get rid of it? Are you going to keep it? Uh, and, uh, you know, she did want to have this child and then she had it and she got fired from the show. And, you know, nowadays, again, this would not fly. Uh, this wasn't even, you know, hidden at the, at this point. I well, mean, and it, was it for- wasn't, it wasn't even just that he fired her, although that would be quite bad enough. It was that he deliberately, um, knew that she was pregnant and like would call her in to work at like 1 a.m. Yes. In, in yes. situations that were physically unhealthy for a pregnant person. Yes, absolutely. And, um, you know, now this was not known that, that, you know, she was treated uh, so badly while she was uh, working on the show. But, uh, you know, she was let go after that season. And there had, was- there had been some allegations surfacing, but the depth of them had not been known. Right. But I, Kate, I am telling you, that it was pretty well known that she was fired uh, because she had a baby, which is yes. not unheard of for a lot of actresses, no, no, no. unfortunately. That was, that was yeah. known. The right, fire right. because baby was known. Right. The, and I, the I, abusive set conditions to the degree they were was not yeah. known. Yes. Yeah, so, so, but I, the reason I just keep pointing that out is just to say that, um, you know, uh, and this is not excusing. I'm just saying, like, you know, in the 90s, it's like, oh, you know, one of your actresses got pregnant. So, yeah, she can't be on the show anymore. You know, she's a baby. So, yeah, she can't be on the show anymore. It's pretty common um, and accepted. It wasn't even, you know, maybe it was like, oh, that's pretty shitty. But, um, you know, it happened. And the kind of abuse that uh, that Carpenter tolerated was also like, oh, the showrunners of them, you know, tough. So, you know, put up with it. Put up or shut up. There's plenty of, uh, you know, it wasn't even considered. Um, it's just what happened. It's just what yeah. happened. But that's, that is to implicate the industry at that time. Not to excuse any no, of it. No, no, no. I'm not excusing. I'm just saying. I think what's incredible about this is how uh, how much was overlooked. Right. Um, and but, but, as many people have been pointing out, it's it's not necessarily that Whedon was uniquely bad, as that he positioned himself as being uh, more feminist and anti-racist than. 
he himself was in his actual behavior toward real human beings. Correct. And so, but so just to back, so anyway, did you, to, and again, you know a lot more about Buffy, so, so, but just to, for me to kind of put this narrative in perspective, um, a lot of this is tied into the Ray Fisher allegations. Now, Ray Fisher yes. played Cyborg in Justice League, and which uh, was started under Zack Snyder, as we know, and then Snyder left, uh, you know, quit supposedly because of his own family tragedy, and then Whedon took over. But we we know that the suits at uh, Warner Brothers were desperate to have somebody else come in and finish this movie. So you know, they brought on Whedon, and uh, Cyborg Ray Fisher uh, has recently come out with allegations that he was treated, um, you know, abusively by Whedon on the set, and that there was a lot of racial comments made by. Whedon, uh, John Berg, and Jeff Johns, the other producers. And he's, he, you know, he, these allegations have been going on for quite a while. And, uh, not, he hasn't really been explicit in what it was that took place, but he's had some support. Jason Momoa, also Justice League, uh, backed him up. And, um, uh, there was an investigation by Warner Brothers into the allegations. Back in December, that said that they didn't announce any findings, but they said actions had been taken. And Whedon left the show that he was working on for HBO, so perhaps people thought that he was gone. Um, now I've, I've heard that this has not been reported anywhere. This is a rumor that I've heard going around: is that maybe he wasn't as gone as people think, and that Carpenter found this out, and maybe that's why she came out with this bombshell. Um, yeah. Because and it's over. It's over. Right. But part of what makes it more of a bombshell is not so much what Charisma Carpenter was saying, because it's a more extreme version, but she had been talking around this for years. It's that the other women who were on the set with her yes. came out, you know, Sarah Michelle Geller, Michelle Trachtenberg, Amber Benson came out and said, yes, she's telling the truth. Yeah, exactly. And and also Claire Grant, who was um who was also on the show uh and uh, yeah, I you know, seen that one. Yeah, that was uh, she's married to Seth Green, who was obviously a regular cast member. You know, I think what Sarah Michelle Geller had to say was really interesting because she's been a bit of a recluse since Buffy ended, you know. She didn't um you know, that was it. She didn't really. She doesn't do yeah, She doesn't do much no, stuff anymore, no. does she? And she no. wrote, while I am proud to have my name associated with Buffy Summers, I don't want to be forever associated with the name Joss Whedon. I am more focused on raising my family and surviving a pandemic currently, so I'll not be making any further statements at this time. But I stand with all survivors of abuse and I'm proud of them for speaking out. Hmm. So um, I think that speaks volumes by not speaking out. You know, I mean, I think. Uh, you know, it's just, it's just, it's just sad. It's just sad. That, yeah, you know, it, this it, is hard for Buffy fans. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think in a way what her statement seems to be saying is that she herself loves Buffy and she's not disclaiming Buffy. Mm-hmm. She's just disclaiming Joss, which I think is a pretty even handed thing to do <clears throat> because well, that his- show was the work of many people, many of them women, not just Joss Whedon alone. Yeah. Um, well, and- his re- reputation has taken a tumble uh, since, uh, particularly since the comment you made about his wife. Um, I mean, it seems as though ev- there is a new rel- revelations um, continually. That's well, I, I, I think he probably could have survived the thing from his wife because 
in this those there are many people in Hollywood with nasty personal lives, but the set allegations I I don't think he's going to survive. No, not absolutely not. And um, you know, and now the Fisher things as well. You yeah, know? Well, I mean, that's, that's one I of mean, the that, allegations. That's yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, I but I, I'm saying that you know Carpenter's allegations are very specific and very very vivid. Um, yeah. Uh, whereas Fisher, you know, he doesn't have any any gotcha moments. You know, he has he says he's NDA'd and he can't mention them. Um, which you know, and a lot of people have been a little. Um, you know, confused by the fact, like, you know, nowadays NDAs, like, you know, speak your truth. Um, yeah, but, but on the other hand, he's not a high-ranking celebrity. He does can't afford really good lawyers to get him out of that NDA if if WB or Joss goes after him. So I can understand that Ray Fisher might be more careful around NDAs than somebody else who can afford good lawyers. Yeah. Um, I mean, if he had a gotcha moment, uh, with someone and just, you know, he did, there would be no need for lawyers because it would be, you know, I mean, either it happened or it didn't is what I'm trying to say. Well, I mean, if there was a gotcha moment and there was a witness, but if there was a gotcha <laughs> moment and it's he said, he said, it might not, it might not stand up in court and he might need that lawyer. Yes, absolutely. You know, I want to point out one thing. I mean, I've been out, you know, listen, I know a lot of people around Warner Brothers. And I have been myself investigating this a little bit and trying to find out if anybody does know more about this case. And I have not been able to find any anyone willing to talk or that seems to have a lot more knowledge of it. But I will say this. There's no one I've spoken with who disbelieves Ray Fisher and his allegations. You know, he basically said that he was treated, uh, you know, with racial insensitivity on the set. I mean, what's there not to believe? He is a yeah. black man in America. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. And, <laughs> and, yeah. and I can definitely believe the, you know, nothing that you, you can like completely is a one gotcha moment thing because I've, I've had bad working environments, right? Mm-hmm. I've had some terrible bosses and, like, rarely do terrible bosses have things where you can just point to one thing that everyone will just be like, oh, okay, then they're a terrible boss. Mm-hmm. Like, if, if you're dealing with a Joss Whedon instead of a Harvey Weinstein, they could be much more like Jello and hard to pin down on their terribleness. Correct. Uh, and also, it's just the power and fear that they wield. You yeah. know, yeah. The, so the other thing about Fisher that I, I was going to say is – um you know, when he was cast as Cyborg, uh, you know, he didn't have a big career behind him, you know? And yeah, he's, he's an up-and-coming guy. Right, he was an up-and-comer. They said they were going to make a Cyborg movie. I don't think anybody believed that. Um, you know, I mean, it never got more than some announcement at a con. And it was, you know, uh, from my opinion, obviously Cyborg is a great DC character. Um, is he in the Justice League? Uh, he's in the Teen Titans, but so as far as I know, right, Kate? Isn't he not? Well, really? I mean, I, I have to say, a lot of people have guested in the Justice League at one point or another. Right. I wouldn't have put it past him to have been in Justice League for a few issues somewhere along the line. Right. A lot of people have been. Correct. But what I'm trying to say is that he is uh, not well known as a member yes. of the Justice League. However, uh, 
I, and it smacks, I'll just be brutally honest, it really smacks of classic tokenism that the Tyborg character was included in here. Um, you know, because they couldn't, obviously couldn't make a team movie without a, a black character. Uh, well, I they. mean, it, I it, think it, that's it, absolutely on point. I, I, <laughs> let me, actually, let me, Kate, Kate, let me, let me just finish this, this train of thought, okay, before I lose it. Um, and, uh, you know, he wasn't treated well. His career didn't go anywhere afterwards. You know, Justice League was hated, so it's not like he got, you know, made a star in other movies. And, you know, now he's spoken out. And then he said he still would be in the Flash movie, which they made. But he said, stood his ground and said he wanted that Walter Hameda, who is also in charge of the DCU, was also complicit in covering up all this stuff. And Warner Brothers stood by Hameda and fired Fisher from the Flash. So now they have zero black superheroes in their universe. And that's what happens when you are just playing tokenism. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I kind of got the impression from things people have said about Snyder's original plan that he may have done a <laughs> Black Panther Guardians of the Galaxy and tried to make Cyborg a more important character as opposed to a token, but that that did not pan out in the final product. Well, I, I loved his treatment of Cyborg. I mean, the whole third scene with his father where you yeah, see his father saving yeah, him. Yeah, it wasn't bad. Yeah, I kind of liked that too. Yeah, father. but I mean, it sounded like he was going to get more meat in the right. original draft of the script, and that didn't happen in the final product. Yeah, well, Cyborg is a great character. Don't get he me wrong. I'm not hmm. saying that. I'm just – I mean, there was a lot there. I'm just saying the way it was treated was very yeah. obviously uh, – you know, it's not even like – I mean, obviously Black Panther is a watershed, you know, landmark movie in more ways than one. But it's like everyone comes out of that movie a star. You know, look at Winston Duke as M'Baku. You know, this guy was known for being on a couple episodes The Equalizer. And now everyone loves he's M'Baku. Fit, oh, everyone loves him, yeah. And he's a yeah. huge, huge star. But, but what I meant well, is – what I meant it's a by much the, better movie. Yes, exactly. <laughs> what, what I meant by the Black Panther Guardians of the Galaxy treatment is to take characters who were less well-known to the film-going public and make them yeah. big. Um, and, you know, it sounds like that was Snyder's original intention for Cyborg. And in the end, that didn't pan out. Right. And so it did turn into tokenism. Yes. Um, which yes. is unfortunate. Yes. Well put, well put, yes. Yes, it could have been so much more. And uh, it's a really ugly situation for Warner Brothers. And, you know, I hope – And uh, look, I I have enjoyed some of Whedon's work over the years and, you know um, – A lot of issues over it that Warner Brothers <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, After you can – I personally <laughs> – you know, it doesn't stop me from enjoying his work well, I'm glad that he's I'm already glad. created, but it will stop me from giving him any more money in the future. Well, I doubt you'll have the chance because he yeah. is done. D-U-N. Yeah, and uh, right. it seems richly deserved because I wouldn't want him for a boss. Yeah. And also, Rich D-U-N, is Kara Dune from The Mandalorian. Oh, yeah. Uh, just a <laughs> yes. little look. It was a real... Like, uh, well. uh, you know, on Wednesday, every Wednesday of 2021 is like a 2020 day. Have you noticed that? It's like something, <laughs> yeah. it just goes nuts, right? So we had yeah, one. Yeah, well, I'd rather have Wednesday. one 2020 day than a whole week. Right. Home, so I'll so, take but it's it. like, well, yeah, every Wednesday is something crazy happens. 
Uh, so this Wednesday, I was like, oh, I don't know what to watch. Shall I watch the impeachment on CNN or shall I watch uh, Joss Whedon and Gina Carano be destroyed on Twitter? Oh, boy. Uh, anyway, Carano has had a lot of really insensitive, racially insensitive remarks on Twitter and on her social media. And Not on what mentioned trans insensitive remarks Yes, well, well, that's it. Trans insensitive, I mean, and, you know, look, you can be conservative. Just don't be a, a, an offensive bigot, okay? Yeah. Every, thank you. Thank you. I mean, <laughs> yes. if I could just jump. In. Yeah, I mean, yeah, sorry, I mean, she, she, well, I don't I don't have too much to say about this, but I mean, from what I've read of it, it seems that she's taken this line that that we, we often hear from, um, you know, uh, the right that, oh, I'm being you know oppressed because I'm conservative until you hear the remarks that they've made, which are usually vile, insensitive, bigoted remarks. Um, and it, it has nothing to do with being conservative, if, if indeed that's what they are. And everything uh, to do with just outrageous bigotry. Anyway. Yeah, and to be absolutely fair, there are any number of supposedly liberal uh, personalities who have gotten in hot water for saying truly horrible things on the Internet. That's correct. That's absolutely correct. And so, you know, I think regardless of whatever her political thoughts are, I think – Frankly, Disney probably wouldn't have cared if she had been like uh, Trump eternal emperor, but she didn't go (laughs) Trump eternal emperor. She said horrible, bigoted things. And eventually they got tired of it once she crossed a line. And one thing in particular, yes? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so the the straw that broke the camel's back, Heidi, you want to share that one with everybody? Oh, yeah, well, it was, uh, she put up, I think it was on her, one of her Instagram stories, it was comparing herself as a conservative to a, um, a Jew during um, the Holocaust, and, you know, like, really? their neighbors, our neighbors are turning us in. You know, Gina, no one has said... You're going to be put in an oven. No one. I mean, I mean, it's, it's outrageous. It's just outrageous. And she, and she actually had a picture of, you know, hol- a naked Holocaust victim being dragged oh, off. For and Pete's it's like, sakes. you, oh, oof. It's so dramatic. That, that, that really crosses the line. So you, horrible. Oh, my God. Adding the picture just takes it to a whole new level of good yeah. God. Now, she took it down. You know, so what? Well, but, I yeah. mean, but, but it's like, you know, are you that much of a dimwit? I'm sorry. I you know I'm calling her names, but that's just so stupid. It's a stupid thing to do. And also, let me read you one other thing here. Uh, you know, first off, uh, I love Lucasfilm's statement because it's – or Disney's statement. Uh, you know, Gina Carano is not currently employed by Lucasfilm, and there are no plans for her to be in the future. Nevertheless, her social media posts denigrating people based on their cultural and religious identities are ab- abhorrent. And unacceptable. That's pretty good, strong language. I, I would have to say yeah. so, too. And supposedly, yeah. good Disney, for Disney. Yeah, good for Disney. And supposedly, you know, we reported it. Remember they had that big Disney Media Day back? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and they were going to, they announced a new show uh, that was called, uh, you know, uh, Rangers of the New Republic. And everybody thought she was going to be in it. And they did have plans for, supposedly, this is what a lot of outlets reported. So obviously, the, you know, the bus was in, in motion here uh, that she was going to start it. And then they saw her tweets and they were like, nope, we're not going to do it. 
Yeah, uh, five gets you ten. That it was probably that they're probably going to just be like, yeah, it's now a Katie Sackoff vehicle. Yes, it's right. Yeah. Well, she. Hey, wait a minute. She didn't work for the Old Republic. She was not okay. She was. Uh, she's a Mandalorian. So, but anyway, whatever. There's but plenty she's of a there. Mandalorian who may get recruited. Who knows? I'm sure. Yeah, they'll yeah, come yeah. Up yeah. With, they'll okay. come up Sasha with some Banks. way to make it work. All the way for Sasha Banks. Uh, bring in Sasha Banks and Charlotte Flair. Whatever. Just raid WWE. Bring them in. They're better actors. Actresses, they have just as much charisma. They can do tornado DDT. So and, it's all. And the good. nice thing is that they don't even need to get rid of the character because they have plenty of animated shows, and they can just add a different voice actress. Yes. Yes. Uh, anyway. Okay. So right. back. That's this week. But you know, a sad for Corano. It's a pretty satisfying conclusion. I'll just I say. To say yeah. Oh, all right. Okay. Now, so what's going on? We? Talking about Disney. Oh dear. Well. That was great at Disney, but then Disney did some pretty crappy things, too. So they shut down Blue Sky Animation, which was Fox's animation arm, okay? So as you may recall, Disney bought Fox a couple years ago and put hundreds of people out of work, uh, which, you know, nobody ever talks about how big mergers put people out of work, uh, you know, unlike Green. always do. Green energy. You know, green energy is going to put people out of work. Sorry to get political, but I'm just like, a person out of work is a person out of work, uh, whatever industry they work in. So, yeah, a lot of people at Fox were laid off. Now, 450 people at Blue Sky have been laid off. Uh, and really sadly, the Nimona animated film yeah. has been canceled and will never come out. And it was only, it was supposed to be released was, in January. Yeah. I, I, I don't understand why they would not just use it like if it's mostly done you do what's your theory well i mean first off i mean the storyline you know i don't know what they changed in the book okay but the book is all about you know a gay romance Yeah. yeah and disney doesn't do that well i mean they wouldn't given that they haven't spent the money to make it You'd think that the very least they would be able to distribute in the United States, get cookie points, and then just not bother to distribute it in China? Yeah. I mean, maybe, but... But Mm. um, But now they're laying off all the people that were working on it. (laughs) Well, if they're smart, they'll sell it to somebody else and let somebody else have it. Yeah. But I don't know if that works. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know if that works. I mean, you know, it's the second time Disney has shut down... A comic space movie. They also shut down the Mouse Guard movie that they were yeah. supposed to make another oh. Fox property. And well, so, yeah. I mean that Ooh. one. I'm not surprised. It's got uh-huh. mice. Well. Anything that's got mice that isn't Mickey, they're not going to take well. But I mean, you know, this is just so furious, infuriating because you know we're seeing more and more consolidation, and yes. uh, this is the result of it: homogeneity. It is. It really is. Um, I do wonder if Netflix being like, okay, we'll do a Redwall show was kind of a screw you to that. I hope so. But poor David Peterson. Poor Noel yeah. Stevens. You know? Yeah. I'm, I'm hoping that, that you know, they can get their rights back and sell them to somebody else. Because they richly deserve that. Like, if you're not going to use it, don't be a dog in the manger. Give it back to them. You just said dog in the manger. Yeah. It. 
Well, you know, sometimes dog in the manger is the only metaphor you can use. You know, the <laughs> dog's not going to eat that hay. I know. I, I say it. that all the time, and people don't know what it means, though. <laughs> like, a lot of people, when I say it, are like, what does that mean? It's old school. It's very old. It's showing my age. So, my well, Kate is I'm too. showing Kate. my reading lots of books. Yes, there you are. Literacy. It's very literate. Um, yeah, well, that super duper, uh, I just, you know, look, Pixar is great. Disney Animation makes great films, but they're not the well, only no, people who make good. great films. Yeah. So. And you know, that, that takes us into, uh, whether or not you should keep everything under your umbrella if you don't plan to use it. Um, Crunchyroll <laughs> was sold by AT&T uh, after they acquired Warner um, because they wanted to concentrate on their streaming service of their own, <laughs> HBO. <laughs> and now Crunchyroll, having been sold to Sony, announces they have now reached 4 million paid subscribers. That was There you go. Well, you know and what? I I'm sure Crunchyroll's better off, quite frankly, with Sony because, I mean, Warner Brothers, as run by AT&T, doesn't seem to know how to run a, screen, a, screen, a streaming service. So. Well, I, I just, you know, as I was talking to an industry colleague the other day and, uh, you know, they were like, can you believe AT&T sold Crunchyroll? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, well, it's better yeah, be crunchy roll. <laughs> yeah, but geez, Louise. Anyway, you know we love streaming. Oh, let's sell a successful streaming. Yeah, it component. just doesn't make much sense. But but we, nobody seems to understand what Warner Media is doing. Right. Anyway. Arguably, not even Warner Media. Yeah. Well, that's a good point. For um, sure. Yeah, but anyway, you know, speaking of also animation, though, uh, do you really want to be in animation? I guess they revealed some Japanese animator salaries. What's the deal there? Oh yeah. yeah so starting salaries, fun times. Um, so first year animators make significantly below average income, even according even among other young members of the animation industry. So. Compared to uh, the average salary in Japan for 20-year-olds, 24-year-olds, they make 1 million yen less. So the average salary is 1,500,000 yen, which is about $14,000 a year, which is... Wow. significantly less, like almost half as much as the average salary for someone in that age group. And um, one first-year animator uh, who does not share her her full name but uh, goes under the name Animator Dormitory Project uh, <laughs> said that her salary over the last year averaged $450 a month. With a picture of how do these people live? Well, uh, as see the title, <laughs> Animator Dormitory Project. Um, oh, well, I guess that says it all. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So I mean, it when you compare, like almost half as much as a a average person their age in Japan, like that's very significant. So, so the really world of Japanese animation is, is, is it 
Oh, I was going to say, I guess, is it kind of a case of it being like a, a, you know, a prestige profession, like, you know, cartooning in the United States and in France? I mean, in France, you know, I know we're going to talk about Angoulême, but, you know, there was also like a another threat of a strike by uh, French cartoonists because they don't make enough money. Obviously, you know, we've talked many times about how little you make as a cartoonist. And uh, but, you know, people stick with it because they they love it. They want to do it. And I, is animation kind of like that in Japan? I wonder. I, I think it may even be closer to the film industry than even cartoonists. Mm. Um, I think it's the equivalent of like really hoping that someday you're going to be the showrunner um, or the top animator. And so a lot of people go on board because they love it. Um, so the animator dormitory project is also a Patreon um, raising money to sponsor an animated mater dormitory for young animators so that they have somewhere to live, right. which is ridiculous and sad and also a good cause. So give them some money over on Patreon. Mm. Yeah. <sighs> well, meanwhile, back at the comics, some <laughs> news in the comics also, um, as reported in ICV2, I guess this was in their retailer mailer, but uh, Image has ended their blanket returnability program. Now, a lot of publishers, I believe Boom, um, I'm not sure how many others did, but quite a few had kind of blanket returnability of their lines um, during the Diamond, because of the Diamond shutdown back in April, mm-hmm. I guess it was, almost a year ago. And, um, but, uh, you know, this is reported on ICV2. And uh, as Milton Grief frames it, it's a sign that the comic business is returning to normal. Um, so they'll still have their number ones as a no-risk program. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah. but they're not line. Yeah, because yeah. the making the full line returnable was something they started a year ago um, in response to the impact of COVID on the comics industry. So, I mean, it wasn't long-term sustainable probably for them. So it's understandable they couldn't keep it up, but um, it, it it is hopefully it's a sign the industry is doing better. I, yeah. I hope that they continue to do well without this kind of support. Can I just jump in and say just for if there's some book trade uh, listeners here who may not understand about returnability and non-returnability, the comic shock market, the direct market that we're talking about right now, those. 2,000 or so stores around the country that are serviced by Diamond Comics distributors. Uh, you know, generally speaking, these stores, um, uh, buy non-returnable at wholesale, unlike in the book trade where, you know, 100% of everything is returnable for the most part. I mean, not everything, but 99%. Um, and this, the, the, I mean, I talk about this a lot. Um, it's a, it's a key feature of the uh, direct market. Uh, it also puts a lot of risk, uh, on the retailer, um, that you don't see in the book trade. Uh, and, and of course, there are many, uh, at least when it comes to, to graphic novels and books, there are many direct market stores now, or at least certainly some now that actually do use, um, book trade distributors to some extent, uh, to get returnability for certain things that they may want to experiment with. That's all. Yeah. Um, Returnability is something that bookstores rely on. Yes. Um, most mainstream book publishers have to make their stuff returnable for bookstores. So it's, it's something that is a luxury that comic stores don't normally have. 
Um, and I'm sure it was really beneficial to a lot of stores that wanted to experiment with image in the past year, but you know, it costs money. Yeah. Well, we're going to see a big realignment of the comics industry. I mean, you know, yes. Milton, I mean, Milton's story is incredibly brief. I mean, I literally just, you know, it's about 50 words. Yeah. It's and, not very long. Yeah. yeah so <laughs> I, I would just say there's more to come on this and, you know, how the whole industry is reacting and, you know, what the state of retail is, which, you know, we'll be delving into as we, as we continue. Um, but, uh, you know, supportedly, uh, you know, going to the graphic novels, um, uh, now it, this story has been out for like a month. I'm not sure we talked about it before, but on, on, uh, news, pardon me, newsarama, it was reported that adult graphic novel sales figures had jumped nearly 30% in 2020, um, according to NPD book scan. Um, and I don't know why this story seems so rudimentary to me. I guess I'm used to seeing book scan numbers and, uh, I guess that's true. Calvin, do you know anything about this report? Uh, I, 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 I don't, I'll be honest with you. Um, but it doesn't sound that far off from the preliminary reports we were getting from, um, uh, 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 I'm sorry, uh, Kristen McLean, Mm -hmm. uh, and Milton, um, you know, a couple of months ago about when they were looking, when they were kind of, Giving us some insights into, um, cause I think, didn't they do, um, they both were talking about partially in the 2020 and the category was doing extremely well. So I haven't really looked at the numbers full on, but basically, and that's, this certainly came up during the Angolan Rights Festival that I was, uh, uh on that really and none of the comics publishers were complaining about their business in 2020. Yeah, well, up 30% yeah. is incredible. You it's know, huge. Now, yeah. You know, you well, guys... 21.9, but... Yeah, 29.1, so just 29.1. Now, you guys, I happen to have the actual book scan numbers in front of me right now because Brian Hibbs is going to be writing them up as he normally does. Now, uh-huh. unfortunately, Brian probably won't do it till April. I mean, he didn't do it until June yet last year. It's a little busy, but I'm hoping to get them up a little sooner than June. Now, this includes all the kids... Um, and let me tell you, uh, let's see. So I can just run some quick numbers here. Uh, let's see now. If I would hear you guys talk amongst yourselves while I figure this out. Anyway, I think it's all up about 30%. Like all graphic novels are up about 30%. Mm -hmm. And adult graphic novels being up 30% is pretty incredible. Uh, they said it's led by sales of My Hero Academia. Uh, the number one book, The Boy, the Mole, the Fox, and the Horse. It's not really usually considered a comic, but I guess Bookscan thinks it is. And it's a beautiful book by Charles. It's a graphic, yeah. It's a graphic book, but it's, I'm not sure you would really call it a comic. Well, you know. And yeah, then but, number three is Strange Planet by Nathan Pyle, which, again, people love to laugh. They love mm-hmm. Nathan Pyle. But, yeah, but you can look at this list and see there's an awful lot of manga. Yes, exactly. Yes. Uh, number 10 is Uzumaki by Jinji mm-hmm. Ito, who was a huge seller in 2010 and, or 2020, pardon me. Mm-hmm. What year is it? It's, I wish it was 2010. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, Anyway, uh, hey, good for him. He's one of the world's greatest living cartoonists, so he should deserves to be a bestseller. Yes. But um, yeah, guess what? Comics did just fine, even in a worldwide pandemic. Yes, and look, let's be fair. Once again, I don't have the numbers at my hand, but the book trade in general did well. 
under the circumstances especially, but everything is up. So um, uh, you have an audience that's trapped in their homes, uh, and generally speaking, uh, this end of the pop culture marketplace, the book end, is usually one of the more economically, you know, accessible. It's content you can afford. Yeah, and uh, as I'm looking at the entire numbers here. Uh, yeah, it looks like uh, overall sales were up about 20%, um, which includes, um, you know, the kids' books, which were huge in 2019. Yes. They were the biggest ever. So up 20% yeah. from that. It's incredible. Uh, yeah, number yeah. one book overall. Can you guess what it was? Can you guess what was the best-selling graphic novel of 2020? Can you guess? Um, something by Dave Pilkey? Yes. It was <laughs> Grime and Punishment. Dogman, okay, Grime and Punishment. So, yeah. There you and go. the number two book, if you call it a graphic novel, was The Wimpy Kid. So, yeah, no yeah. surprise these books are you know, yeah, comics or comics related. They're fine. Comics <laughs> are it. fine. Comics they're did doing just, just. They were doing, they're just, doing fine. just fine. Uh, but not doing as fine conventions. Well, yes. you know, it's problematic. It yeah. is problematic. Um, let's see. So it just was announced. So, so okay. So on our last episode, Calvin had just about at the rights uh, Angoulême Rights Fair, and they did announce the book winners. And now, Calvin, I'm sure you'll have something to say about this. So the Grand Prix, not the Grand Prix, the number one graphic novel of the year winner was The Hunting Accident. Yeah, pretty uh, amazing. I mean, since that book came out a few years ago here uh, in the states. Yeah, but you were a big fan of it, weren't you? I liked it. It was really, really well done. Uh, in fact, if you you go back. I forget what year it came out in this country, but if you go back in uh, 2017, if you go back to the, the San Diego Comic Con 2017, we have an interview on the floor of, of Comic Con uh, with Landis Blue. Who, who's the illustrator? I'm a oh, little. I don't have yeah. it in front of me here. We're, yeah. we're drifting away. We're drifting away. It was by Landis Blair and David L. Carlson. David L. Carlson was the artist, and Landis Blair is the writer. I guess the story is based on uh, a little bit on his own life. Um. Yes. Yes, it is. You know, I've forgotten his connection with his life, but it's it's a fascinating story. And I guess it was about was it his father who was imprisoned? Yes. No. What it is is his father is blind, uh, and he yes. thinks that it happened in a hunting accident. And then he discovers it actually happened while his father was committing a crime. And family secrets come spilling out for yes. hundreds of yeah. pages in a very dense black and white woodcut style. Yes, but it's really a remarkable work. And I apologize for mangling the the plot line, but you really it's a book you have to see to believe. It really is mesmerizing. Just, uh, the drawings you know, and the the story. Uh, just, um, you know, an American book winning the top album at mm-hmm. uh, Angoulême. Uh, boy, crazy, you know. Well, the world my, my has favorite, changed. My favorite, yes, the world has changed. My favorite thing is Monsters won a couple years ago also, so it's not yes. unheard of. But two mm-hmm. and three years, woof, it's crazy. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Um, but uh, anyway, as far as cons go, uh, we just got word just before we went on the air that uh, it's official. WonderCon is going to be virtual this year. It's usually held in March in California. No way. Uh, was this going to happen? So, you know, nobody's surprised by that. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it's another, you know, sign of the times. 
which leads to a lot of people asking, will we be, you know, having hybrid shows in the future? Yeah. So this year, the first hybrid show I've personally heard of is the World Cosplay Summit. So that was canceled last year. Um, but this year, uh, it's, it's set in Nagoya in Japan. And this year they've announced that it's going to be a hybrid convention. So there will be in-person um, events with photo shoots and stage events, as well as a video cosplay championship. So what they're going to do is they're going to have some events in person and some events online. My guess is that would be the video cosplay championship. Um, last year they just had a online cosplay summit presentation. So, you know, I mean, maybe that will be what we see for a while, that, you know, maybe there will be, you know, a few in-person events for people who happen to live in that city, or maybe, as was in this case, or maybe several satellite in-person events in smaller venues with, you know, more careful social distancing or whatever, and the rest of it online. I don't know. Um, Calvin, what are your thoughts? I honestly don't see. I just don't see in-person uh, events in um, 2021. I think it's going to take at least to 2022 uh, to get back. Maybe. I mean, I know they said the Angolim. I don't really understand. Uh, Angolim is supposed to have some in-person events. Uh, and I also think that they're also wary, uh, as I understand it, um, Angolim gets an enormous amount of government support. But that support is kind of based on there being events uh and if they're not events uh that becomes an issue so i think what they're trying to do is have it both ways uh to to do a portion of online which is the 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 uh, angola mark rights market uh that i was a part of but i do think that there are some very small targeted events in angolim to you know basically you know mark their territory so but calvin um, you know, it's been announced recently. Now, you know, we talked about how BookCon and Book Expo and BookCon yeah. are done. They're finished. They're not coming back. They died. Coronavirus killed them. Uh, and uh, PW has stepped into the void. Yeah. It's called the U.S. Book Show. Is that it's what it's called? The U.S. Book Show. It's a uh, terrible name. Sorry, George. But uh, well, anyway. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Well, the, I, George yeah, honestly, Slowick, I our whole idea is that <laughs> this will be, you know, one and done. Uh, so... Um, yes, I mean, obviously, uh, the, the industry, when Reed Pop, uh, uh, and Reed Exhibitions basically just said that they were retiring the show, um, I mean, they're, they're, they just didn't want to go through another online virtual event. It isn't what they do, and it isn't how they make money. Uh, well, also, uh, I just saw today on PW that uh, re- revenue at Reed Exhibition sank 71% last year. Well, surprise, um, surprise, yeah. Yeah, so that's uh, uh, Events that's are what yeah. they do, and yeah. you can't yeah. do events. So it's, yeah, it's mean, very tough. It sounds yeah, like but, but, the only people who are doing worse than them are concert promoters. Yeah, but but yeah. Calvin, tell us about this book show. Will it have well, a comics component to it? What, what, there will be a comics component where all everything is super preliminary. Um, uh, there will be there will be an adult and kids comics panel. Um, I think uh, I'm not entirely sure, so this could change. But I think it's going to be a pretty big panel with about. 
it's going to be a kind of a combination kids and adults buzz panel. You know, the BEA or Book Expo yeah, usually has a big buzz panel where they have editors on um, uh, from the various publishing houses talking about what they think their big book of the year is. So I think it's going to be a combination of adult and kids. This is all very preliminary. Things could change. We have, Even though the show was announced um, a few weeks ago, if not a month ago, uh, and basically is that people are wary of going to the Javits Center, but that doesn't mean that they don't think that there should be some industry-wide virtual event. PW being really a kind of iconic brand in this business, you know, we decided to step forward and get something done. Now, there, in fact, is another group, uh, and I think around Edelweiss, the um, uh, the galley uh, and kind of pre-publication platform uh, that were uh, organizing something as well. But I think that what you'll see is that the industry will galvanize around PW. So basically, we're going to do a kind of a substitute show, and it will be at the end of May. Uh, this year, and yes, there will be comics as well as all the other good stuff that you like to see in a, mm. a, a convention, except it'll be done virtually. Well, you know what? Good for George Slowick, uh, the owner of Publishers Weekly. Of course, yeah. PW was used to be owned by Reed, uh, which put on Book Expo. So, you know, it used to be a very symbiotic relationship between the two. Um, but, uh, and Reed was, uh, pardon me, PW is still involved in putting out the show daily, very much involved, obviously, yes. in covering the show. But I think, I think that's great that George has stepped forward because I'll say this. Uh, you know, he understands the value of events, even if they're virtual, and he's right. You know, PW was correct. There should be a big event for books. Books did super well in 2020 in a pandemic. Yeah, publishing just, is not going anywhere. Business was business was a was difficult, mm-hmm. but uh, you know, it was there. The business was there. If you could figure out how to get your books to readers, so um, and once again, there's a complex reaction to. Uh, Book Expo, and uh, everyone wants a show. Now, does everyone want to go to the Javits uh, Center? That's the issue in many ways. So, um, But I, we will hear more about this, of course, more going forward. Yes, it, uh, as always. Time. Uh, Heidi, can you say that again? Because it made a little whoop noise when you put that woo! note in. Okay. More. To come on the book show. All right, all right. So our our time is ticking down here. What do we? Yeah, got we next? do. We don't have too much time. Let's skip the pants. That was just silly. Anyway, um, Kate, you want to do the briefs? Well, yes. there's the Stan Lee and King Kirby. Do you want to skip that? Too? Yeah. Why don't you throw that in, Heidi? No, I don't know. I don't. I don't actually okay. know a lot about it. Okay, we'll skip it. We'll skip yeah. it. Okay. Okay. okay right, so um, let's have some briefs. We were going to discuss um, the King Kirby podcast, but suffice to say, there is a podcast about the uh, biography of Stan, the biography of of King of Jack Kirby. Jack Kirby. Sorry, I had a brain freeze. Of Jack Kirby, and um, it is a four-part dramatic scripted podcast called King Kirby, and you can find it online. And uh, we are hoping to interview its creators. Yeah, so, well, the creators are, are 
are the creators are the comics writer Fred Von Lenti and the the playwright Crystal Skillman and Crystal, uh, you know, both award winning writers in their own. Um, uh, I actually, you know, I just said I didn't know anything about the show. And I was like, what am I saying? I saw it. Uh, <laughs> and and uh, Crystal is a great great writer. I gotta say, she is a great, uh, really really talented playwright. So they've adapted it to a podcast. And yes, I, I will be talking to Fred and Crystal next week, and I can't wait. Yeah, that's will be good. And if I'll just, if I may just add into that also, is that um, during the San Diego, um, uh, the virtual San Diego convention, actually there was a terrific panel about, really about Stanley and Jack Kirby, and it was Abraham Reisman um, talking about his book. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> uh, talking about his book, and uh, Danny Fingeroff talking about his book about Stanley, and uh, Fred and Chris will talking about. <laughs> Uh, about the play. So you had a lot of information about the Marvel Brain Trust, the classic yeah. Marvel Brain and, Trust. And, uh, you know, Abe's biography of Stan is out. I uh, just got a pretty big write up in the New Yorker. Woohoo! Uh, yeah. and, yes. you know, we're talking, we're trying to get him for the podcast. I'm not sure that's going to come through yet because he's quite busy, uh, promoting the book. But, um, yeah, and it's, uh, uh, I, I actually do have a galley of it and I'm reading it and, uh, it's apparently gotten some real, you know, he's gotten some heat because he points out that Stan was no saint, and we all yeah, knew yeah. that. He, he wants well, to know. He's a guy. He's got some feet of clay. Yeah, I mean, come on. <laughs> I mean, look, I don't think Stan was a mo- look. We've talked about Stan and yeah. Jack yeah. on this podcast dozens of times. More to yeah. come on that as well. Yes, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think suffice to say, some people can do some things in business that doesn't make everyone happy without being monster of the year. Yes. Correct. People are complicated. They're not black and white all the time, uh, yes. like in comic books. All right. So, um, speaking of real life people, comic books, not one, but two different Japanese politicians ripped off the logo of the anime Demon Slayer. Yes, that's right. Um, <laughs> Not only one politician, in this case, Fukuoka politician Makoto Oniki, uh, he copied the logo, substituting his name into the logo, uh, which is exactly this. You can look at it. it artistically, it on his uh, campaign poster looks like the logo on the movie poster. So that's hard to deny. And then... He is not alone in this because Kaisuke Mitsumoto, a city council member of Hyogo Prefecture, also knocked off the same logo for his campaign poster. Um, but unlike uh, similar things perhaps that might happen in the United States, unless, of course, the company you're ripping off is Disney, um, <laughs> Demon Slayers... Uh, corporate backers did not stand for this and uh, notified these politicians that they were not pleased, leading to humble apologies for the logo snatching. So let that be a lesson to you. Uh, You know, don't steal an anime logo for your campaign poster. I I didn't think that needed to be said, but like, don't do it, folks. How Not embarrassing! You think that an American politician would ever like steal a logo of a comic book, of a comic book or a well, graphic I, novel I, series? I, oh yeah, say, absolutely. Yeah, 
Yeah, but I mean, probably not for Marvel anyone anymore because everyone knows that Disney has man-eating lawyers um, <laughs> that don't take kindly to the argument that something's a parody. So yeah, that that would be fun to try. But I would somebody rip off Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles logo? Absolutely. Um, I'd be interested to see who'd do it, but someone totally would. Um, yeah. Well. Uh, listen, oh. that's super embarrassing and don't do it. Now, Calvin, we were a little yeah. bit late starting because you just did a panel, correct? For, yes, uh, I did. part of Black History Month, uh, talking about that book, Invisible, Invisible Men, right? Invisible Men. It's really quite remarkable. It is work, a good, but... it's a good book. I have a copy. It's I keep meaning to write book. something up about it, but, um. And, and what he has done is he's kind of done the, the initial work that's really in, really enlarged our understanding of really pioneering black comics creators. In um, uh, in the industry, really, really, we were talking about in the 1940s, and it's called Invisible Men: The Trailblazing Black Artists of Comic Books. It's by Ken Quattro, who's a historian and um, um, uh, just uh, basically a maverick historian. And we did a panel today with Stanford Carpenter, uh, the academic uh, and cultural um, uh, cultural anthropologist and comics historian, uh, Craig Yo, who is the publisher of the book. And uh, 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 Ken and myself as the moderator, sponsored by Society of Illustrators. Uh, it's a fabulous book. I'll be posting, you know, the, the archival link and some screenshots from the show. But go out and buy the book. Um, you know, well, look, m m most of our people, most of our comics fans have heard of Matt Baker, uh, who was really there's a lot more information known about him. But this is an amazing collection of people. I don't even many of the names I have never heard of. Uh, people like uh, Elmer Cecil Stoner. Maybe we've heard of Alvin uh, Hollingsworth. Uh, he actually um, uh, was a close friend of Joe Kubert's. Uh, but it's a really an amazing book. Uh, Oren C. Evans, we may have heard of because he was the founder of All Negro Comics, really kind of the first black produced uh, comic uh, comic book with all black characters, characters like Ace Harlan, the, 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 the detective. <laughs> uh, but you also get a look at the, just the cultural um, landscape of the time and how uh, many of these uh, artists actually worked in these studios that were kind of like like yeah, Iger Studios, which were more like packagers. So, and they kind of just dropped in, pick up the work, and, and drop back. So a lot of people either didn't think they were comics artists or didn't think black uh, folk were working in the, the studio. So that was one way that they could, they were able to break into the business. So anyway, I'm, I'm going to leave it at that, but it's really a fabulous book and a fabulous panel. And I'll be posting the uh, link to the archive, a recording of it. Awesome. That's a great note to end on, Calvin. But and in this month, sure, in this month of black history, you bet. There, yeah, it's great to have this this uh, secret history uh, brought to light, and um, you know, to get all these great artists looked at, you know, known again. Uh, but you know what? That's just the tip of the iceberg, because as always, there will be more to come. Yeah, we're like a barbershop quartet there. We've got it all right. <laughs>